1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? Again, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? Father, for this teaching this morning, for our understanding, we pray your Holy Spirit to speak and to guide and to lead and to help us, Lord. It is just so human of us that for us to lose sight, to lose focus, to lose even passion, Lord, that we don't have the physical strength to maintain 24-7 like we know that you can. But Father, what, what you have to teach here is, is truly profound, and I ask that you'll help us to conceive and understand, to perceive, Father, and to know by revelation what it is that you're saying. And as I prayed earlier, Father, as we talk a lot about drawing near to you, I just pray that you'll help us to understand who it is that we truly are drawing near. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in a story arc. <laughs> Seeing if you're awake yet, we're in a story arc about the ark. First Samuel chapter four through seven is the story of the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, of Yahweh. And you could say we're in the midst of an archeological study which is why this is entitled Understanding Archaeology, Studying, Knowing What's the Deal with the Ark. Cheryl asked me a great question last week. If we are not to be idolatrous, why did God give the Ark in the first place? It's a good question. We're gonna think that through a little bit. Now, of course, the golden box itself is, forgive me, it's an archetype of something greater, of someone far greater, as Jesus said, I tell you, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than the temple, greater than the tabernacle, obviously greater than the Ark of the Covenant itself. The Ark of God is picturesque. It is to help in understanding. It is not to be worshiped. In fact, that's why it was never to even be looked at, save once a year when the high priest would go in to sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on the ark. That was the only time it was to even to be seen. We'll understand that better later. So God didn't create an, or, or call for the making of an idol to be seen and to be fallen down before and to be worshiped. He gave a symbol that would teach something else, that would explain something else. Truly, the ark itself is a picture of Jesus. And you can think this one through. There are a lot of nuances to it that are interesting. It's, it's made of gold. Well, it's made of acacia wood, Actually, the box itself is acacia wood, which speaks of his humanity. It's covered over inside and out with pure gold, speaking of his divinity. It contained the Ten Commandments just as Jesus himself kept the law perfectly in and of himself. And atop the ark sat the mercy seat, which is what Jesus brings. And again, there's more to the ark that you can think through in terms of how it is a representation of Jesus and or of the throne of God in heaven, 
But understand that while the ark itself is the central set piece in this story, it is not the focus. The problem that the Israelites and the Philistines and the Israelites again will have and have in 1 Samuel 4 through 7 is they focus on the ark and not on the one who called for the making of the ark. There go the windows so you can look out. Isn't that nice? The ark is to focus us on God, on Yahweh. He is the focus. In fact, it's the presence of the Lord that must be understood in these chapters before us. So we've been looking through this. We talked a little bit about it for Samuel 4 last week. We went through chapters five through seven on Wednesday night. We left some stuff hanging for this morning. The Israelites and the Philistines, we've got two people groups dealing with this Ark of the Covenant and dealing with their understanding or lack thereof of Yahweh. And at first, the Israelites, they, they thought they knew what the right focus was. They thought they understood. If you look back at chapter four, verse three, it says, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And I told you last week that could be translated it or it could be translated he. So the deliverer, they may be referring to, to God or they may be referring it to the ark itself, that the ark would deliver them, if that's what they thought, that's idolatry. If it's that they thought by bringing the ark into the battle that he, that is God, would deliver him, that's manipulation. And, and both are wrong before the Lord. As if there was some inherent power in the ark, there wasn't, or if God existed to do Israel's bidding, which he does not. You understand that? That he doesn't exist to do Israel's bidding, nor yours, nor mine. That's not why he's here. We exist for him. We exist to do his bidding and not the other way around. So the Israelites, they, they thought they knew what the ark was about, what the ark was for. The Philistines seemed to know as well. If you look at verse six of chapter four, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of Yahweh had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. So at least some Philistines understood the power of this Yahweh and recognized that with the ark being present, their God must be present as well, again, the problem with the Philistines was they had an idolatrous view of God or gods, a plurality of gods, and they, they believed that the God needed a symbol. Their God, Dagon, had the, the big idol to Dagon that sat in the temple of Dagon. That was part of the story in chapter six. But they didn't understand that it wasn't about the symbol, it was about the Lord. So the problem among both Philistines and Israelites, it wasn't only idolatry and it wasn't only manipulation or exploitation. The real problem at the root of it all was rejection. Rejection. Rejection of the Lord for who he is. We have more to learn from both of these people groups. Philistines and Israelites. And so we're gonna look at a couple of more archeological issues this morning. We'll start with the Philistines, and then we're gonna come back to the Israelites. 
So let me give you some overview. If you missed this last Wednesday night, in chapter five, the story takes a turn for the intriguing. Chapter four, it's, it's kind of this, you know, where the Israelites are coming from, where the Philistines are coming from. They're fighting each other, so who can help who? And they're trying to either idolize God or, or manipulate him. And, and so all of a sudden in chapter five, it gets interesting. God himself goes to work. This is where we see him show up and actually begin to act. As the Philistines put the ark into their temple to Dagon, who we believe either was a half fish, half man, that's, that's probably what Dagon was, we're not exactly sure, but day one of the ark being in their temple next to their fish-faced God, Dagon falls face down before the ark. They come in and they find their idol face down before the ark in the position of worship. They prop it back up. I said Wednesday night, I don't know who would want a God that you would have to prop up, that you would have to support, that you would have to defend. Well, the Philistines prop up Dagon, and on the second day, it's toppled over again. But this time, its head and its hands are cut off. Note that, not broken off. The Hebrew language is very clear. They are cut off as if uh, surgically removed. The head and the hands, and they're lying on the threshold of the temple of Dagon. Yahweh is sending a message to the Philistines. First day, the idol is toppled. Second day, the idol is toppled with head and hands cut off. God is trying to get through, but it doesn't get through to them, the message that is. And so God follows this up. He sends marauding mice and horrendous hemorrhoids among the, the, the people, the Philistines. We looked at the words. It's very clear what the word is referring to there. They couldn't walk their streets or sit on their seats. I mean, it was that bad. <laughs> God is creative. Mouse traps and little tubes of Philistine H must have been selling out everywhere. So the ark then gets passed from Ashdod to Gath. Well, we'll put it in Gath, it'll be okay there. Same thing happens there. So it gets passed on over to Ekron. It'll be okay in Ekron, right? They're a strong city. No, same thing happens there. Until finally it gets sent back to Israel. But with the return of the ark to Israel, the Philistines are still refusing God. This is something that we can easily miss because, because the Philistines are the enemy to Israel. We automatically make them an enemy to us and an enemy to God. Now they were an enemy to God. They're not my enemy. They don't even exist as a people group anymore. So that, that's not an issue for me, but the Philistines are refusing the God of Israel even by trying to set him up for failure. And as the story continues, they intentionally stack the cart against him so to speak. Look at chapter six, verse eight. They said, take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you returned to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side and then send it away that it may go. Watch, if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Bet Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. When was the last time there was a chance plague of mice and hemorrhoids? I'm just asking. 
on every city where this article of the Lord happened to reside. And yet they, they send it up and, and they're playing a game here. The Philistines only see two options with Yahweh, malevolence or coincidence. Either he's malevolent toward them and, and causing this horrible thing to happen to them because he's opposed to them or it's a coincidence that it happens at all. And there's a third option that they don't even consider and that is repentance. Have you ever considered that? That rather than just you know, going after with malevolence the Philistines that God actually was trying to get their attention? That though they were the set enemies of Israel, God was still trying to save some, if not all, of the Philistines themselves? Now, someone might argue that. Well, but the Philistines weren't the people of God. They weren't the chosen ones. No, but they were people. And he is God. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The love of God is not limited to the chosen people any more than it is limited to the church. God's love is worldwide. Hey, before he gave his son, Jesus said he so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Meaning his love preceded the giving of Jesus and God loved the Philistines. Which again, it's a strange thought. Now I didn't say he approved of them or approved of their antagonistic behavior toward Israel or accepted their foolish idolatry. Not at all. But I said he loved them and I can prove it to you in the increasing pattern of punishment. If it was just about malevolence, it would have been hemorrhoids day one, right? Or death. What's really interesting is in their misuse of the ark, God first just topples the statue. Are you paying attention? They prop it back up. He topples it again, chops head and hands off. Are you paying attention? They're not. They put it back up. I don't know if they reattach the hands. I'd love to know who the idol maker was who had to do that, you know. Okay, get this back. Oh, that hand's off a little bit. Let's get it. Is anyone getting this? It's a coincidence. And then all of a sudden, here come the mice and the confusion and the hemorrhoids in one city. Then it goes to the next city. And then it goes to the next city. And we see this progression of punishment by the hand of God. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Now he's talking to the church at that point, but God will punish and reprove and discipline if it will draw someone's attention to him. And this is what I believe he's doing with the Philistines. These are increasing punishments to get their attention. Well, what does he want for them? Confession would be nice. And repentance. Confession and repentance. Confession is just honestly acknowledging our sin. That's hard to do. That, that, that has to precede repentance because why would you turn to God if you didn't acknowledge that you needed him? And there is a reality in every one of our lives where we need to stop and say, you know what? I am a sinner. I am a sinner. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, you need to understand that every single follower of Jesus had to come to a point in their life where they acknowledged and recognized, I'm a sinner. 
in need of a savior. It's not like we're all righteous and we're waiting for you to confess your sin. I would not be a follower of Jesus if I hadn't confessed my sin. And by the way, there's an ongoing confession. I recognize the sin in my life. I recognize without him, I would be absolutely hopeless. Confession, honest acknowledgement, just genuinely saying, yes, I don't have all the answers. And then repentance, turning away from sin and toward God. First John chapter one, verse eight says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. <laughs> you know, I just love how the scriptures tag us and tag people. Well, I'm not a sin, I'm a good person. If you say that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're just lying to yourself. And the truth is not in you. He goes on to say, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Which is why the whole story comes to this beautiful, epic conclusion in chapter seven, verse three, when Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, and remove the foreign gods and the Ashtarot from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And I submit to you that he would have delivered the Philistines from their lostness too, if they had just paid attention. What would he have delivered the Philistines from? Their own foolish hands and their own foolish belief. But isn't it interesting how hard they work to try to cause a God that they reject to fail? A God that they don't believe in. See, here's the thing about the ancient world. They believed that there was some inherent power with this Yahweh, this God. This was the God of the Israelites. We have our own gods. That other culture have their gods. They're all gods, little g. And that's what was believed in the pagan world. Just because you have a different God doesn't mean that you don't have a God or that that God isn't legitimate. I just want a God that's more powerful than your God. Such messed up thinking. And they, they wanted to cause God to fail. James 2.19 tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But have you ever pulled a, a Philistine return? looking at what they did. Okay, first let's get a cart. Let's, let's put the ark on the cart. Let's take the articles in a gold box, articles of gold, put them in a box, buy the ark, and let's get a couple of cows and we're gonna send it on its way. And it's so interesting how they do this. But I call it a Philistine return. This is what it looks like in our, in our lives today. We say, if this happens and this happens and this happens, then I'll know it's God. And we set up conditions uh, if these things take place, and we do this in the church, we do this as Christians. If this takes place, then I'll know it's you, Lord. If not, then I'll just assume it's a coincidence. And that's what the Philistines are doing. And, and there are three aspects of this. One is just dismissal. Get the cart as far away as possible. Get away from the presence of God. And that's what our culture does. Because you can't really stand in the presence of God and be comfortable with sin or with doing your own thing. Get, you know, dismissal, let's just get rid of it. The second attempt is diplomacy. 
which is what they do when they take this box, a little box with five golden mice, little mice idols, and just piles of golden hemorrhoids. I'm sorry, that was a really bad pun, but, but you know. They fill up this box with these golden idols of, of their mishap, if it's a mishap, or of their punishment. They're not sure which one it is, but they put them in a box. It's diplomacy, it's appeasement. Let's offer it. They, call, they even call it a guilt offering so that their God will back off. What kind of God would want little gold hemorrhoids for, for a gift? We talked about Wednesday night. I don't even know what those look like. That must have been one nasty job to be the guy who had to make those. Yeah, we need to put in an order for 100 gold hemorrhoids. Oh, um, I mean, it's not like you're gonna get a model in there for that one. Okay, so diplomacy, dismissal. The third thing is then just disruption. That is, stack the cart against the possibility that we might be wrong. What do they do? Think this through. They unequally yoke two unbroken cows. So you can read the story in chapter six. I'm just telling you what happened. They take two cows that have never pulled a cart before, so they're unbroken, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. I haven't, but I have read stories. And it takes some time to get the cows aligned. And once they are aligned, if you even just switch them, you're gonna have a problem. So they don't even know how to pull the cart. They're not trained to pull the cart. Let, let's get two unbroken cows. They're stacking the odds against the Lord. And they unequally yoke them. By the way, I can't even say that without acknowledging 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 which says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That is, do not be unequally yoked. Heading into, and this, we, we apply it to marriage. It's not just marriage, it's partnership, business. It can even be friendship. And some might say, well, if, if, if I'm never friends with a with an unbeliever, then how can, I, how can I bring the gospel to them? I didn't say don't be friends with them. I said don't be yoked in a deep personal relationship because if you are, the relationship is gonna go one way or the other depending on which one's a little bit stronger. It's either gonna pull you away from the Lord or you'll pull them toward the Lord, but it's a huge risk. And Paul says don't be bound together in a yoking with unbelievers. He says, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You know, when, when Titus and the Romans finally crashed into, uh, they burned the temple, but they finally went into the Holy of Holies, Titus was shocked to find it empty. Even at that point, the, the ark wasn't even there. Isn't that interesting? We know the ark was in the first temple. After the first temple, the ark disappeared. Had never been seen again. Was not placed in the second temple. Well, then how did they worship there? They weren't worshiping the ark. They were worshiping God. How could Jesus go up to Jerusalem and up to temple to worship there, to offer sacrifice there, to celebrate the feast there? Because the ark was never the issue. God has always been the issue. But they broke in there. They saw nothing in 70 AD when they 
destroyed the temple. And Titus thought it was so strange. How could this people in their most holy place have a big empty room with nothing in it? And so even Titus the Roman didn't understand. I love that Paul goes on to say, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people, which is an awesome, awesome reality. But they get these two cows, they unequally yoke them, they've never been used on a cart before. They're milch cows, we find out in verse seven. A milch cow is a, is a cow that's nursing a calf. So these two cows both have young'uns that are taken back home and, and shut up in the barn and they're hooked up to this cart. What do you think they're gonna do? Milch cows are gonna go find their nursing calves. That's, that's where their heart is, that's, that's where their direction should be. Well, the Philistines sabotage this return to undermine Yahweh. They, they, they pull everything that they can to make it really unlikely that the cows would just draw this thing back to Israel. Look at verse 12. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Bet Shemesh. <laughs> they just got on the road and headed their way. It says they went along the highway lowing as they went, lowing because that's what cows do when they want to go back to their nursing calves, but it's like they are compelled. They can't turn around. They have to take the road straight back to Israel. And they did not turn aside to the right or to the left, so these two unequally yoked cows that had never pulled a cart are just pulling straight on. Off they go. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Bet Shemesh. Says the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see. The ark came into the field of Joshua the Bet Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone and they split the wood of the cart and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Poor cows never did make it home. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was, within it, that was with it in which were the articles of gold at this point, he's not even describing what the articles of gold are anymore because, okay, we've had enough of the grossness. And the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. Watch this. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. Guess what? This happened, this happened, and this happened, and yet the Philistines went back to Ekron anyway. Obviously, this was an act of the Lord. It's like the final, the final example that God is in control, that God is in charge, that the only God is in charge. And what is their response? They go back to Ekron, unaltered, unchanged, unrepentant. Maybe you haven't gone so far as to overtly reject the Lord. Maybe that's not you in your life. But when it comes to the truth of God's word, if it doesn't fit your current lifestyle, do you cart it off in dismissal? You know, avoiding things that remind you of his expectations? There's a lot of expectation here. Yeah, I don't wanna think about that because it, it runs counter to the way I wanna live my life. Do you try diplomacy? I'll appease him with occasional church attendance, you know? or acts of goodwill. I'll do some good things and that will appease him. You know what, your good works are golden mice and golden hemorrhoids at their best. 
Some play those mental if-then games, and that's just pure disruption. Listen, the problem is not with God's will, it's with your unwillingness to submit to the Lord. That's always the problem in my life. It's not with his will, it's my unwillingness. It's that I don't wanna submit. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the question really remains, what are we going to do with his ways? The Philistines had to answer that question, and they answered it. They turned around and went home unchanged. They maintained their enemy position to Israel and to Israel's God rather than accepting the opportunity to confess, to repent. What are we gonna do with his ways? What will we do if we set up conditions for God you know, to prove himself or to prove his holy word to our satisfaction rather than receiving God as he is, we're just going back to Ekron unchanged, unaltered, unrepentant. Listen, you know this, I'll say it again, Jesus never changes. It's we who need to change. So if there's a problem in your relationship with Jesus, it's not Jesus. It's you. It's me. Now, it's not me in your relationship with Jesus, so don't come blaming me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification, which means we are being changed. We are in process. We are being sanctified. And so if you're struggling between yourself and God, that's because you're being sanctified. Not to make him more like you, but to make you more like him. Not to make him less holy, but to make you more holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Because holiness has been play all along, in play all along. Let me give you a little more information about the ark now before we get back to the Israelites. To understand about the ark, in Numbers chapter four, I'm just gonna read this to you real quick. Numbers chapter four, verse one. It says the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their families, by their father's household from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old. So that's the age of the priest, 30 to 50. All who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in. They shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Listen, this is how they did it. They walked up to the screen, they turned around backwards, they unhooked the screen and they backed in and lay the screen over the ark so that they would not even look at it. This even included the high priest who was afforded the opportunity to look upon the ark once a year, but when they were about to up and move out, Aaron and his sons went in, took that screen, lifted it up, and backed over the ark to lay it over the ark so that it was covered. And then, then they added another covering 
says they shall lay a covering, verse six, of porpoise skin or badger skin on it. It shall spread over it a cloth of, of pure blue and shall insert its poles. So you have the veil, the very thickly woven, beautiful veil, and then you have a badger or porpoise skin. I won't get into the skin this morning. And then you've got a blue covering over the top of that. And then they insert the poles and, and they leave it. They do over the table of the, of the presence. They spread a cloth of blue and they put it on the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls, et cetera, et cetera. They spread over them a scarlet, a cloth of scarlet material. They do the same thing, verse nine, for the lampstand with a blue cloth. Um, over the golden altar of incense, verse 11, they lay a covering as well. And they take away the ashes from the altar, verse 13. They put a purple cloth over it. And then you get down to verse 17, and it says, the Lord then spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites. Do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy even for a moment or they will die. Don't go in there and look upon these holy things. The only ones allowed to look upon them, once you go into the holy place, would be the Aaronite priests. Once you go into the holy of holies, only the high priest, and only in the service of the Lord. Everyone else, when they went in to carry these things, were not to go in and look upon them at all. You see what God is doing? He's saying this is not about idol worship. These, the, the, the issue here. Isn't that you go in and see, and I wonder what these things look like. I wonder what the ark looks like. They could read about what the ark looked like. But don't go in and lay your eyes on it. What is God doing here? He's establishing holiness. You gotta, you gotta sometimes we try to put yourself in. Remember, he said, my ways are not your ways. So we try to put ourselves in the, in the thinking of God who calls this people Israel, chooses them to be his people, calls Abraham out of paganism, out of, out of polytheism, out of Ur, and brings him into the promised land, makes promises to him, and then begins to develop a people. How do you teach them? How do you help them understand your nature and your character if, if you're God? How do you establish holiness? Well, that's what he's doing. All of these artifacts were teachings on reverence for the sacred, not idolatrous worship, but you've got to be reverent here. You need to understand. Let me put it to you this way. Before we could see and know God in the flesh, personally, we needed to at least have a sense of God who is spirit perfectly. Understand, because if he just came in the flesh, all we would be is casual with God. So first he had to establish who he is and how absolutely spotlessly perfect and holy and righteous he is, that had to be understood first so that when he came in the flesh and we developed this personal relationship with God, listen, Christian brothers and sisters, what has to be behind the personal relationship with Jesus is the recognition of the holiness of God, of the righteous purity of our God which makes the personal relationship all the more mind-blowing to me. But we can't dismiss how awesome he truly is. Uh, turn in your Bibles over to Hebrews. 
Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. We'll, we'll come back to First Samuel in just a second here. In the study of the ark, we're talking about why did God develop this ark in the first place? And again, it is to teach holiness, to help the people comprehend what it means to serve a holy God. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13. Just listen to this verse. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So when you approach a holy God, you ain't hiding nothing. Nothing. You, you can hide stuff from me, I can hide stuff from you. We're all pretty good about that, you know, or with that. We can keep these, these embarrassing things or these sinful things or even these chosen rebellious activities. We can keep them undercover. We can keep them under wraps from each other. God sees it. All things are open and laid bare. There, there's no getting around that. I don't say that to freak anybody out, but it's just true. You're not fooling God. I'm not hiding anything from God. And yet the verse ends with whom we have to do. So there's another reality there. I have to deal with God. I may put it off my entire life and die and I'm gonna have to deal with God. Every human being is gonna have to deal with God. So here we are standing there before God, open and laid bare. Naked and stripped would be a good way to translate that. Before the Lord, nothing to hide and no way to hide it. And I gotta deal with him. A holy, perfect, righteous God. Verse 14, the Hebrew pastor says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Jesus, the son of God. Jesus is the confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, without verse 13, verse 16 makes us very common and casual and lackadaisical with God. Oh yeah, I can approach the throne of grace any old time I want. You're open and laid bare and you gotta deal with that and you gotta deal with God. So don't get all cocky here. We understand verse 13, then when we come to verse 16, we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To understand what's about to happen now to the Israelites, we have to get this. There is only one way to approach an absolutely holy God, and that is by absolute holiness. That means when you stand before him, open and laid bare, you have to be seen perfectly. It's the only way you can approach a holy God. And the only way for us to be perfectly holy, to be made absolutely holy, is by faith in the purifying blood of Jesus, right? The only sacrifice, I still, this amazes me, Jesus is the only sacrifice in all of history who became high priest, he is the lamb and he's the high priest. He's both. 
Without Jesus, we're toast. So keep that in mind and go back to 1 Samuel now. The Philistines, they reject God. They send the ark back. They, they, they try to appease. They do all the things we talked about. They send it on its, on its merry way. Verses 17 and 18 in 1 Samuel 6 now recount the golden tumors and the mice that were sent with the ark. It kind of recounts that again, almost as, a, as someone's keeping a tally here. And then at the ver, end of verse 18, it ends with the ark being settled on a large stone platform at Bet Shemesh. Pick it up there. It says, verse 18, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Betshemite. So that stone, at the time of the writing of 1 Samuel, that stone was still there and everybody acknowledged that's the stone where the ark was. That stone, the large stone. In Hebrew, large stone, some of your Bibles may translate it differently. It, does, it can mean large stone. It's ha'abel gedolah. And it actually more literally translates the stone of great mourning, the mourning stone. We might even say the headstone. This is a stone of mourning. This is a stone of sorrow and it's the name that was given to this location, the Abel Gedolah, was the name given to it because of what is about to happen. So the author is using the name ahead of time because this now becomes a place of great mourning. Verse 19, he, that is the Lord, struck down some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. I know some of your Bibles say 70. I'll explain that. 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. So ultimately, they call this place Ha'abel Gedolah, that is, place of great mourning or the mourning stone. Now, real quickly, we went over these numbers on Wednesday night, 50,070 men. Some Bibles, if you're reading the NASB, it says 50,070 some translations, the NIV and others, <coughs> excuse me, say 70. If you read the original Hebrew, it says 50,070. 50,000 men and 70 is what it says. Why do they take out the 50,000? Well, the, the, the scholars look at this and they go, okay, Bet Shemesh would not have had 50,000 residents. That'd be way too many people. Now, you can answer that by saying, yes, but the surrounding area may very well have had 50,000, and once the ark came back, people may have been coming from all over. So it is possible there was 50,070, and again, that's, that's what it says. One more thing I wanna add to this I didn't share on Wednesday night is it can also mean 50,000, there were 50,000 men, and 70 can also, in the Hebrew, translates from 50,070 which is possible because the 50,000's in there, but it could be from 50,000, 70 actually were killed, but it wasn't 50,070 people that were completely slaughtered, but it was from 50,070 died that day. I said Wednesday night, the other issue is it says that it was a great slaughter, and back in chapter four, verse 10, that same phrase is used when 30,000 Israelites died. 30,000 is a great slaughter. Would 70 be a great slaughter? Well, we could argue the point, because on the one hand, you might say, well, not compared to 30,000, but if 70 people in the city of Oak Harbor 
were killed all at once, I think we'd call that a great slaughter. So it's a difficult number to understand. Is it saying from 50,000, 70 actually was the number of people who died? The number seven in 70 would seem representative of, of the way that, that God might judge and that he didn't judge everyone, that maybe 50,000 people showed up, but it was only 70 who were complicit in this uh, rebellious behavior. I, I don't know. At the end of the day, I just say, it says 50,070, so I'm just gonna leave it at that. We'll let the Lord explain the number to us uh, at, at, a, at a time not yet far from now. But some uh, can't make this whole thing compute. See, the slaughter was very great, 50,000, 70,000, okay. Either way, the bigger question, and the one we left hanging from Wednesday night is this. What was so deadly about looking into the ark? I mean, these aren't Nazis, right? Uh, this isn't Indiana Jones. You know, these aren't men whose faces are imploding and melting and exploding, like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And some assume that what they did here was they lifted the lid, they opened it up, and they looked inside, which is what caused this great slaughter, 70 or, or the 50,070. What's interesting is all the passage actually says is the Lord struck them because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, right? That's all we get. It doesn't say they took the lid off. It just says they looked into. Now, we make an assumption. Well, it says they looked into. Therefore, they must have lifted the lid to look into the ark of the Lord. How can 50,000, how can 70 people look into the ark all at once? I've always imagined maybe they were kind of up on hillsides around the ark and they lifted up and they all kind of saw from where they were. I don't, I don't know, but here's the thing. Now, now, let me get technical for just a second. Looked into the ark. Looked into the ark is Ra'u Baron. And Ra'u Baron, mean, it looked, means to consider, ponder, or gloat over. Keep that in mind. Looked into, into, the word into in the Hebrew, which is the ba there, baron, it's, it's a preposition that means in place. So they looked at the ark in place. It could mean looked into. It can also mean among. It can mean upon. That is to say, this can very easily translate that they considered or looked upon the ark or they gloated over the ark as they looked upon it. Why are you getting into this, Rick? Kyle and Delich write, the construction of the Hebrew means to look upon or at a thing with lust or malicious pleasure. And here it no doubt signifies a foolish staring which is incompatible with the holiness of the ark of God. I would disagree with them. It's incompatible with the holiness of God himself that they would look upon this thing with such a wrong heart. Remember, Numbers 4, verse 20, they shall not go in to see the holy, even for a moment, or they will die. In other words, the holy striking of this people, if we read this and consider what it's truly saying to us, either they looked into the ark, or they looked upon it, or they gloated over it. In all cases, the issue 
is a very serious, unholy heart problem. And this is what's so easily missed when we read things like this in scriptures. We forget about the heart of the people, why they're doing what they're doing. We just see what they're doing and go, wow, God struck down 70 or struck down 50,070 people because they took a lid off a box? Why would he do that? That just seems crazy. God knew their hearts. God saw the heart of the people when they set the ark up on that rock. Did they open it? I don't know. It actually looks like they didn't open it. They just looked at it. They gloated over it. At best, they were looking upon something that they were never to look at at all. At worst, they're gleefully gloating over its return as if they had anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah, chosen people, here comes our ark. Of course it does. Whatever the case, their attitudes were messed up. Listen, we can be that way. There are times where we are casual in our approach to God, looking upon him in a way that we have no right to look upon him, treating him, talking about him. I, you know, anymore when I hear someone even refer to the man upstairs, it just makes me cringe. This is God. This is Yahweh we're talking about. This is Jesus. Well, didn't Jesus become a man? Yes, and he died for you and me. And he rose glorified. And if you really want to get a good picture of Jesus, read Revelation chapter one. He is holy and righteous and awesome. And for us to be just casual and flippant in our approach to him is similar to Israel that day. Or, or when we're boastful about a victory that we did not win. If you ever have a sense as a Christian that you're even slightly better than someone else because you made the right choice, then we're gloating about something we have no right to gloat about. In fact, the Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're gonna boast at all, it's in him, it's not in us. It's not that I made the right choice or I'm living the right life or I'm so much better than all those people out there. It puts me in the camp of Israel staring at the ark with gleeful stupidity. And, and I'm, I'm pausing on this because the lack of reverence and respect for the holiness of God in our world today is staggering. It is truly staggering. In this country, and, and, and as one at my age, I can tell you as a boy, I see a dramatic difference with the attitude America as a country has toward God, had toward God then versus how it has toward God now. <coughs> it's amazing. You think about all the social issues that are problematic and, and divisive in our world today. All of these social issues, I'm not gonna list them out, but think about the fact that God is not even factored into the equation. No one's even asking, how does God feel about this? How does the creator look upon our behaviors, lifestyles, things that we think are so free-minded? The lack of reverence and respect for God is stunning. Even among Christians, the occasional lack of divine reverence should be deeply concerning to us. Jonathan Edwards once said, it is the absence of godly fear that signifies a lack of the knowledge of God. See, the more you know God, 
the more the fear rises. And I'm not talking about being afraid of him, but in awe, yes. Staggered, when we say, oh Lord, we just want your presence here. Do we know what that means? If he were to give us full awareness of his presence, and yes, he is among us, he's here this morning. But if we were to be fully aware of, of, of what that presence truly was, we would not be sitting in comfortable chairs. Every one of us would be on our faces like Dagon <laughs> before the ark, before the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 says, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Remember what Peter said? It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It needs to start right here and right here. And then the Hebrew pastor says, Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So again, before we know him personally, we have got to accept him perfectly in all of his awesome holiness. Back in the story, if you're still struggling with this great slaughter, think about this. Whether they looked in the ark or just upon the ark, whether they gloated over the gold box or not, what was it that sat on top of the ark, the mercy seat, the mercy seat. This is what happens when mercy is either ignored or removed. If they took the lid off, if you remove mercy, there's nothing left but slaughter. If you ignore the mercy seat, as you gloat over the box, as you look at this holy thing, <laughs> look at what we've got back here. Yeah, yeah, we got it all right. We're gonna win over these Philistines. If, if the attitude is so wrong and you're ignoring the very mercy that is given to you, slaughter. See, it was for mercy's sake that God returned the ark to Israel at all. It was not because they were naturally better than the Philistines. Listen to me on this. Chosen doesn't mean better. It just means chosen. They were chosen because God is good, not because they were good. And this comes from one who loves Israel, you know this, and loves the history of the Jewish people. But I look at some of the things the Israelites did, and I know they weren't any better than anybody else. They certainly weren't any better than you or me. Yes, they were chosen, but that doesn't mean better. And in fact, chosen meant they were subject to the perfect law, which meant they were subject to the law that says you do not even look at the Ark of the Covenant lest you die. If you even look upon it, and here they all are gathering around, hey, the Ark's back, the Ark's back, check it out, oh, our Ark is here. And in looking upon the Ark, even without looking into it, they flouted the perfect law of a holy God. I am so thankful for the way that God paints this picture because there is one thing that is above the law and it's mercy. Mercy sat above the law. The law was put inside, right? The 10 commandments, the tablets. 
Mercy sat above the law. Mercy is above the law. That is our confidence to approach God. It's the mercy seat. That earthly representation on the Ark of the Covenant, the earthly representation of the very throne of his grace. Again, Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is by the mercy and the grace of Jesus that we have confidence, that we become bold, not gloating, bold by grace. We approach a holy God, not a box, not a religious artifact, but note that also, we approach him. And this is another problem with Israel is they're looking at the ark and gloating perhaps over it. They're not thinking about the fact that this is to draw you near to him. This is not actually about the ark at all. And yet they're staring at the ark. Perhaps what most offended Yahweh that day was that they approached the ark without thought to him whatsoever. Verse 20, the men of Bet Shemesh said, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Guess what? The attitude is adjusting. This is a right attitude. Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriat Urim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. This is remarkable. To whom shall he go up from us? In other words, means where can we send the ark to be rid of the presence of God? Israelites, Come on. I mean, let's see. Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Kiriath-Jerim. They're doing the same thing the Philistines did. We can't stand holiness. We need to get rid of holiness. Listen, my fellow Americans, the removal of holiness is not freedom. As it is so viewed in culture. Just take away all the trappings of Christianity and the Bible and all, you know, the Bible is hate speech. So just get it out of the way and we'll be truly free. No, you will be more chained up than you've ever been. This country will be a country in chains. And the only reason why it's not completely chained up right now is the word of God is still preached in some pulpits, at least in the world today, in America. But the removal of holiness is not freedom. And yet here they are, having had this great slaughter, who's able to stand before the, the Lord, this holy God, that's the right question, but then they turn around and say, and where can we send it to get rid of it? Instead of again, repenting. This is how the world thinks. Remove holiness and you can be free. We are never more worldly than when we dismiss the holy presence of God. So this is not about avoid or dismiss. This is about the embrace of his holiness, which we can only embrace by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. But when we think we can free ourselves of, of judgment or of discipline or divine expectation, we're actually setting ourselves up to be in chains. The truth is we need to be made holy and pure. Turn in your Bibles over to Mark chapter five. I got one more thing I wanna share with you here. Mark chapter five. 
In verse one of Mark chapter five, Jesus and the apostles were told, it says they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes or Gadara. Gadara, so this was a region that once had belonged to Gad, the tribe of Gad, now it was a region of pig farmers, which think about that, you know, pigs being unkosher. So he comes to the region that's now called the Gerasenes or Gadara, and verse two, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And when he, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. So it's interesting, he tears off what are considered to be chains, and, and it's worse for him, right? Like I said, the removal of holiness is not freedom. He's removing the chains. The chains were to subdue him, but he breaks them off, and in his unsubdued, demonically possessed state, he's doing himself far more damage as he's screaming and gashing. Verse six, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. I just love this scene. Jesus and the apostles get out of a boat, and here he comes. And Jesus standing there on the shore, I, I just have this picture that Peter and John have jumped back in the boat and are pushing off of shore as fast as they can, right? And the man comes running up to Jesus and falls down before him, shouting with a loud voice. He said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Had been saying means Jesus is repeating this. So as the man's rushing toward them and Peter and John are putting the oars back on the boat, Jesus is standing there saying, come out of him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And there's this, there's this battle going on in the spiritual. There's a, a, a spiritual battle. This fight is taking place as Jesus is making a command and they're saying, no, 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 don't torment me. No, leave me alone. And he was asking him, what is your name? What is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion. For we are many. A legion is four to 6,000 soldiers. It's a lot of demons in this guy. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In Luke chapter eight, verse 31, it tells us that the demons were imploring him not to send them into the abyss. The abuso. What's that? You can read about it in Revelation chapter nine. But it's the one place no demon wants to go. So they're begging him. They're crying out not to send him out of, the, out of the country or into the abyss. Now, verse 11, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, which is awesome. That is just awesome. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Or as I've said before, the swine flew <laughs> into the Bay of Pigs. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, 
the very man who had had the legion and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore, watch this, they began to implore him to leave their region. What can we do with this ark? Where can we send this? How can we get this out of here? We don't want this around us. This is terrifying. They command him to get rid of it. Why Why did they want Jesus to go away? Because this kind of purification frightened them. It, It horrified them. It was terrifying for all the people, but it wasn't terrifying for the purified man. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. One side implores Jesus, go away. The other implores him, bring me with you. Which one are you? Which one are you? In your life, do you have a tendency to try and say, go away? Whether it's go away, Lord, or go away, requirements, or go away, commandments, or go away, purity and holiness and righteousness. Go away, I really don't want that right now. I wanna live my way right now. I'll consider that stuff later. Are you a go away person? Or are you a please let me come with you person? It's interesting that the man who had been healed of his sins and purified of this demon possession wanted nothing more than to come with Jesus. Verse 19, (laughs) And he did not let him. What? I thought Jesus was going around telling everybody, follow me. And this guy says, I want to follow you. And he says, no, not today. He said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had what? Mercy. He had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. And we see uh, later on that when Jesus comes back to the same region, throngs of people want to see him. Why? Because of one man's evangelism, because of one changed life, because of one life changed by mercy. The word mercy there is elios, it's compassion. It can be translated either way. When you seek sometimes compassion, there's another word for compassion, but Sometimes compassion in the New Testament is mercy, and sometimes you'll just see the word mercy. This is what the compassionate mercy of God looks like, clothed in a right mind, sitting at peace and longing to go wherever Jesus goes. The survivors of Bet Shemesh again ask the right question. Who is able to stand before Yahweh this holy God, but the answer is not praying God away from you. It's accepting what perfect holiness covered by pure mercy does in you and to you. God is absolutely holy, but he puts his mercy on top. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the sinners but I did, not come call to, I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And Jesus is calling you and me this morning out of sin into righteousness. Will you accept his call?
Father, thank you for your word. Just the consideration, Lord, again this morning of your absolute beauty and perfection. That you are a holy God. You are completely other. You are unique. There is no one like you. And you are pure and perfect and righteous in all of your ways. All of your judgments are holy and true, Lord. And I thank you this week for the reminder of that. And I thank you for showing us that above your holiness, you have set your mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, it's your mercy we need and your grace. It's your forgiveness and it's your cleansing. And I thank you for bringing both. But Lord, as we receive mercy, as we receive grace, as we receive forgiveness, may we never shun holiness. Help us what, to learn what it means. You say, go learn what this means. I desire mercy. So help us to learn what it means. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.